Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Designers Sarah Zode and Sloane Dawson were startled by the differences in how homelessness was manifest in West Coast cities, including their new home in Seattle. Surprised and disquieted by how desensitized so many residents seemed to be and how commonplace visible homelessness had become, they sought to find a creative outlet to respond to the people they saw struggling to survive. In speaking with Sarah and Sloane, I started our conversation by asking, as East Coast transplants, what did you notice about homelessness that was different on the West Coast? Its scale and its prevalence. Um, you see it everywhere, and uh, um, it was overwhelming at first, but um, you know, one thing that, that Sarah and I both I think was an impetus for, for ultimately pursuing the project that we did recently on homelessness here in Seattle was not only how quickly it was apparent and confronted you, but how quickly one could become almost like callous really to it. Um, Sarah, if you have more. Yeah, I think um, we actually moved here on the same day. Uh, we went to grad school together. We lived in Boston um, at the same time and we both moved from there to Seattle on the same day by coincidence. And we both sort of went through this process together of um, kind of that immediate reaction to trying to understand what we're seeing here. And then we kind of reflected a lot on what we noticed happening to ourselves which is like trying to just live and like shut down a part of our consciousness just to be able to go to work and come home and you know just like your daily process your daily life process and we it was like kind of this moment where we were like you basically have to shut down our humanity to a degree in order to function here and um, I feel like it was those kinds of conversations that really prompted us to like start to think about ways to explore it more, which ended up, you know, leading to a project, but um, I think those, those, we had a lot of, like, processing that we would do just as friends moving to a new city, and that was, like, a big piece of, of moving here and acclimating to life in Seattle. Uh -huh. Did you have conversations with other people who have been here for a while? Did, did you get a sense that the same process had happened to them and kind of hadn't, hadn't noticed it because you guys were moving from out of state and it was an immediately apparent difference for you? Um, I think in some of the conversations I had, you know, like for instance with colleagues and other acquaintances in the city, um, they certainly have noticed it's more prevalent. Like they've, um, they had noticed that suddenly there was this explosion of kind of, you know, camps that were starting to form in marginal spaces in the city under, you know, freeway overpasses and, and the like, and the increased prevalence and presence in public spaces. Um, but I guess one of the things that, that really struck me was how, you know, it was kind of observed casually as a fact. And maybe there was kind of like some lamentation in there about that condition, but there wasn't really a connection emotionally with it um, or a sense of like it was moving someone to do something. It was a cause of kind of moral outrage or of, you know, anything beyond kind of sad resignation and in some ways even acceptance of it um, uh, was kind of the, the 
dominant pattern that I saw. And then in, in some people that I talked to, um, you know, there was more of a reactionary, like, oh, well, you know, we just have to figure some way to clean it up. Um, so it was kind of a, a, those were the two dominant reactions that I, that I saw in conversations with people. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with that. It was, it was more like, there was a, certainly a recognition that this thing was like becoming more of an issue. But it, I think we were coming at it like we jumped right into this thing. It was a lot more of a shock. I'll speak on my own behalf and say that I was there was like a lot more of a severe like state of shock for me. Um, especially like I've never. I mean, I've lived I've lived on the West Coast before, but I guess I've never really lived in, in a neighborhood with so much with such a high concentration of homelessness. And so um, it was just like the visibility of it and the just like quotidian nature of it that was really jarring and when I spoke with people who were born and raised here I didn't get the sense that uh, they shared at least the same kind of like emotional just whatever I was dealing with it didn't feel like I, I could share with, yeah. with them. It was abstracted it, like it's interesting how so many of the conversations are abstracted into it's an issue um, yeah. versus like you know uh, it's it's a condition it's a condition that's like it's a it's a something that human are, humans are experiencing and it's a you know it's a cause of it i mean it hurts it physically hurts you know when you see you know folks who are living without shelter and who are experiencing you know drug addiction or some other you know clearly out of their mind or so forth i mean it just really it, it's painful to to see someone you know suffering so like that. so how did you move beyond uh, the sad resignation and acceptance, and what did you do to do to address it and kind of bring some humanity to the discussion? Um, well, so we didn't really set out thinking like we must do something. <laughs> We're just residents and just thinking about life here, you know. Um, and what really happened was this prompt that the city of Seattle had around, you know, like the mayor. Announcing that um, homelessness had reached um, a state of crisis, and in you know in in light of that, the Office of Arts and Culture, in parallel to that declaration, that they were going to do a year of like um, exhibits in the gallery space in the Municipal Tower, and so they kind of had this open call to artists and designers, and it was really seeing that that proposal that or that uh, call for proposals that really made us think like, is there really an arts approach? to even engage in with this, you know, and I think we, we looked at it thinking like, you know, these are questions that we're already asking ourselves and talking about, um, you know, just between the two of us over dinner, why don't we use this as a way to like continue to have those, really ask more questions, not really answer them, really, you know, that's not, maybe the, the, the point of an art exhibit is not really to answer the questions, or at least that's not how we went about this, we were just like, let's continue to have this conversation um, and let's see what we can do in this space. So it, we never really set out to solve it or anything. We really just were <laughs> yeah. sort of like, let's let's meditate more through by, through the act of making something. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that like one, one thing that really that struck us is this whole, you know, this emotional dimension, this need to take something that, you know, I think that people really labor because it's so difficult, right? To, ab to essentially abstract it into a policy issue or things that, you know, these things that we negotiate or debate in the public sphere 
and to use an, some kind of arts-based project or intervention to, you know, remove that or, or, to, or to make it really human and, you know, a, a, a bring that kind of visceral or some aspect of, of you know, I'm sorry, I'm not articulating myself well right now, but, you know, to bring the, the human back into these dynamics um, versus you know, we encounter folks on the street, we do our best to kind of avoid um, or to, you know, steel ourselves against that. And then we have these abstract conversations about policy interventions and the comfort of our social circles that we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. This is really key moment, I feel, in the development of like, especially the early part of our uh, conceptualizing the project where we were like, you know, there's maybe three general approaches to to doing an art-based project on homelessness we were like we could go the didactic route and talk about statistics and like try to map out the problem or you know analyze it and spit out some statistics that may be useful to people or we said you know second uh, way could be go with the more like visceral try to talk about the pain and sort of the the, like really call out the suffering that's Almost happening. The confessional, in the right? The confessional aspect, right? And then, or the third is like, what's the sort of human connection, which is what I think we've been struggling with the whole time, which yeah. is like that these are people's lives that they live every day, and they're, they're complex humans. They have complex emotions. There is suffering, and and there are statistics to you know measure all of this, but there's also this like really just like mundane like we're humans thing that gets lost in the whole conversation and it was like debating those three approaches that we finally kind of started to move toward. I feel like that conversation really was um, just fruitful for us in the whole process of like okay you know this is a part of the conversation that we don't have for a lot of times it's easy to slip into the like immenseness of the issue and the suffering but it's like what about they just like humans out right. there, you know? Right. And that really, I think, what enabled us to pull, you know, as, as we were developing the project, it, it, it pulled us in a very different direction, obviously, than even, I think, even what we were originally proposing, which was very much about taking the moment of, you know, or the, the spatial language of the bus stop and using that as a departure point for the project, since that's where so much of, Inter, you know, so much of the interaction that, you know, housed and homeless populations have um, on a quotidian basis is in, you know, is in this space. But, you know, we quickly realized as we're, you know, starting to, to you know, explore these different balances of the project um, that actually it's a very difficult metaphorical device and also site to stage this intervention on because it's really, it, it reifies the boundaries and it's just so difficult to like, you know, to make that space a comfortable place where you can foster those human interactions. So we we really radically transformed mm -hmm. the project and we were thankful that, you know, our um, our sponsors at <laughs> the city were um, were at every phase of the kind of the development of the project very supportive of, of our evolutions of it. So where did it end up? What's first of all? What's the name of the project? We've been talking yeah, about the yeah, project. Yeah, the project. The, pro the project. <laughs> which, which, which is very different depending on what tone you give the yes. language. Yes. <laughs> well, we we landed on the living room project, um, and we landed on the living room as both a 
metaphorical device as well as a literal, you know, uh, device uh, for staging the kind of human inter interactions um, that that we wanted to bring to uh, this notion of conversations on homelessness. And um, I guess Sarah, maybe you, you want to talk about how how the living room and the different interpretations, I guess, that we that we took on it. It, it became like a triple entendre. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> just kept giving us more. Um, you know, I think, you know, I'm just thinking back almost chronologically in our logic process. You know, we started to think about how the, the, the discourse on homelessness really focuses on things that people need, which makes sense. You know, you need a place to sleep and for what people perceive as needed, um, you know, so a roof over your head. Um, but then when you think about your life, what are the things that you cherish the most? You know, it's really moments with your loved ones, your family, and your friends. And um, that, you know, what is the space, what is the vessel for that? That's, that's the living room. And so it's, it's literally the place where life happens. Um, and then we started talking about making a living and, you know, all of these things. And the living room became a lot more than just like a room. It just became like the reason why, you know, we live basically. Um, and so it it's something that's just equalizing. It's something that um, spatially it encourages people to interact with one another and like a space, like no other space really, like no other typology of public space. To be honest, you know, we don't really have a really great public space culture in Seattle. We don't have great plazas. We, you know, our parks aren't made for that. Um, so we really started to think about the living room as like just spatially inherent to it is the idea of a conversation, the idea of a coming together of people. Um, and so we, we were, I mean, we had so many conversations about what living rooms mean, you know, like the photos of your family, all of those things that are, you know, and then, and then we looked into it and we realized that most, um, most housing shelters, like emergency shelters, are closed during the day in Seattle. And so, you know, we just kind of take that for granted. Like, where are people during the they're day? They're spaces you know? of necessity, right? right. Like, and, and they're all functions of necessity, um, which is important. It's important to think about that and to really thoughtfully design that ecosystem of spaces of necessity. And, you know, it could always, it, it of course, needs to be better. But, um, you know, but where, what, you know, what about the spaces of interaction, spaces of delight, you know, um, that aren't formally programmed or structured for a necessity of life? Um, and that's definitely, that's the living room. And, yeah. you know, when we look at even on the housed side, you know, in a rapidly growing city like Seattle, um, the real estate market, of course, is focusing on delivering, you know, efficient housing on, um, you know, the studio, open one bedroom. Micro unit, exactly. apartment. Yeah, so like the, 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 the spatial, like the, the sandbox, if you will, of like of any individual space is shrinking so much with the ex expectation that the living room will be replaced by a bar or a coffee shop or some other, you know, private space of consumption where you gravitate to based on your income group or your social circle. So... The function of the living room is a place where you could actually invite people um, where, you know, an intermediate space between pure public realm and pure private realm where you can actually be vulnerable and let down your guard and, you know, maybe entertain different forms of identity or talk in different ways with different people 
is such an important middle scale that's increasingly essentially being annihilated, you know, in in a rapidly growing city like like Seattle. And you know, I would argue in the, the you know it's a major thing that's being lost in I guess our overall urban turn. Yeah, and what that did for us conceptually, I think, was important because. It made homelessness no longer a binary with a huge divide in the middle between people that live inside and people that live outside, but it became a continuum. And in that way, it was equalizing, you know, like this is the, this is a condition that we all can relate to. And it's not just you, us, and that. It's like we're all facing the pressure of this, you know, this div- intense development pressure in the city, and we're all, we're all feeling that to some degree. So you've given me a really wonderful kind of conceptual framework, but physically, what does this space look like? Yeah, <laughs> that and, was and a process. Where, and, <laughs> and where was it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we originally were intrigued with the idea of the urban rest stops around Seattle, which have... Um, Can you explain those a little bit? Yep, they're city-owned facilities, um, city... Nonprofit. Oh, um, LIH owns it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yep. The Low Income Housing Institute run, runs and potentially, I guess, owns them as well. Um, they offer showering, showers and laundry facilities um, for free. And so, you know, as places of need, we looked to those as potential locations for our project so we could, like, augment the space of need with, you know, space of delight. Um, so that was our starting point, and there are three around the city. One of them is the University District, and it faces an alleyway that shares frontage with Facing Homelessness, which is a nonprofit that kind of conceptually operates similar to the way that we're speaking, in that like they really focus on sort of human connections. Um, also along that alley is um, a needle exchange called the People's Harm Reduction Alliance, um, then there's the United Methodist Temple um, yeah. and, and the Roots Young Adult, young adult Shelter. shelter. Um, and so it's just this kind of concentration of nonprofits along this alley, and the alley being a public space that um, is already sort of enclosed, and a lot of people already congregate there, especially homeless people. Um, and it's also a travel path for. A lot of university students and faculty because it's in the university district in the heart of the university district and so we found these sort of parallel worlds you know taking over the same or occupying the same physical space but not really interacting to be kind of an ideal site for us to to propose this installation um someone do you want to talk about the actual installation sure and and maybe uh before i, I jump to that we actually were exploring another site before we landed on this site um, and we engaged with another location of the urban rest stop in downtown Seattle near the Amazon headquarters. And ultimately, um, in you know, kind of going through a charrette process with them, um, concluded that that wasn't the best site and that this other site would be better, um, largely because of the dynamics in that space socially are, are very different. And um, they actually viewed this as, as more of a potential liability or really a threat to the folks who use their services at that location. Mm. Um, Why? And, well, I think it was just, you know, they, they've had some really unpleasant encounters with um, some of the uh, other business owners as well as um, newer, co- like, condo and apartment towers in the area. They've even had people throwing things at folks using their facilities. So 
Um, it was just a much, uh, frankly, a, a hostile environment. We just couldn't get to the point of convincing them that you know any kind of measure that we took uh, in designing the space was going to you know upset that or transform that dynamic. So you know, rather than forcing the issue, um, we were able to you know pivot to a new location and one ultimately you know as Sarah described, I think it was much, much better for making the project succeed. Um, we, uh, in terms of the, the living room itself, um, you know, we had, uh, we essentially got mostly, you know, modular uh, furniture. It was mostly an exercise in kind of, you know, pulling together versus creating new um, furniture, you know, like a um, parking day or whatever installation. I, uh, I guess kind of ironically, we uh, the installation itself coincided with parking day <laughs> on September 15th. It was the last nice day. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but what we did is we took over three parking stalls outside of facing homelessness, um, which has this kind of porous relationship with the alley. You know, they open their windows and people go up to the windows and interact with the staff. Um, and then they also manage donations out of there. So, People will come up and ask for socks and for cold weather gear and so forth. So we took over the three parking stalls in front um, and transformed that kind of interactive space into the living room. We had a you know a long sofa about 12 feet, <laughs> um, and then several kind of conversational setups with um, chairs. Everything we kind of selected so it really felt homey, but was also you know robust construction, outdoor use, so it can be reused. Um, we had uh, one of the design challenges that we had from the Roots, uh, or I'm sorry, not the Roots, the People's Center Reduction Alliance, was a need to kind of create a screen um, with, uh, you know, so as folks are going to exchange their needles, they feel like, you know, they can be protected, um, but that also that screen wouldn't be a barrier to entering the living room. Um, so we essentially use the you know shelving units like you can get at IKEA, um, and kind of had different cubes and different ways of kind of filling that so you could accommodate that screen. But then that also became an interesting like point of interaction because people could pull out, you know, grab a pair of socks or whatever, and then suddenly get into a conversation with someone who was sitting in the living room. Um, we also had like you know rugs and things to soften the space, and I think also really critically, um, we hung drapes outside, um, outside exterior facing windows from facing homelessness to try kind of create that softening dynamic. And yeah, I think there were some key. I think actually the smaller scale details really, yeah, really made plants. this. Like we had you know cut flower, fresh flowers. We had fruit bowls. So the way we served food too wasn't like a soup kitchen you know it was we're yes. sharing a meal you know so we had food but it was you know and we had donations but it was get what you need it was, you know the socks were in the drawers yeah. you get the socks you know it's not you don't come to one of us and ask can I have some or how many can I have you know we would just say take what you need you know and we ended up with food and socks and everything left over you know when one, one guy who was living on the street was like you know he, he also kind of made the observation that people were being really careful about what they took and he said, you know, at the end of the day, it's about survival, it's not about greed, you know, which I thought was um, really poignant observation. But, um, you know, we had books and puzzles and 
Pictionary and magazines and um, we had picture frames where we had Polaroid cameras in the room so um, that became a really critical device in terms of just you know the space already prompted people to speak to one another in a way that was pretty magical but the Polaroids really gave you an extra element of yeah. like a human thing to just talk to the person next to you hey can you take a picture of me or you know somebody walking into the space taking a picture of everyone and it also didn't make the image proprietary to the person with the camera you know like our, our phones are but rather now you have this object and it's like oh I, you know yeah. yeah you can have I'll take it you know the, and we were conscious about the size their pocket size we got little frames that plastic frames that people could put in their pockets and people were like I don't, I don't have any physical pictures of myself you know People took 10 of them with them. This one guy was about to make buttons and wear the buttons of them, you know, pictures yeah. of himself. And, um, you know, so we had house plants. We had, you know, there was an incredible, I think, attention to these coffee tables and side tables. And, you know, um, we, had, we, we had lamps. <laughs> we had, you know, we had that one. The lamps were the only thing that were, like, truly, purely decorative. I mean, we had no, we had, like, <laughs> no, no yeah. like, because you're in the middle of the day. Yeah, and we're outside, yeah. and it was just—I mean, it was purely just a, like a gesture. Yeah. you know, all of it, you know, attention to you know, detail at a level to soften and to yeah. to make the space feel authentic, even though it was very artificial. Right. And yeah. Clearly, an outdoor environment in this alley. Yeah. And, yeah. The curtains we got, like you know, we got them pink and flowy. It, you know, we wanted to go for your mom's like big window curtains. You know, the, like, they were beautiful, and I think people were really drawn to them. And, you know, we had that big, long couch as kind of a datum, but then we had these smaller armchairs that people were moving around the space and were more flexible. And, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the Polaroids were, you know, uh, um, were a tremendous device, um, yeah, for just fostering interaction and, you know, really creating a a tangible um, artifact of the day that people could take with them that a lot of people left photos to for for us and some of them are are in the on um, the exhibit uh, in the gallery space at Seattle Municipal Tower on um, yeah it's... so you you'd said at the outset that one of the goals or one of the conceits was mixing these two populations that there's a strong binary between them right now how successful were you, were you in that endeavor? I, I, <laughs> I think I, I think it really highly successful. I've I've never seen, frankly, and 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 all my time in Seattle, I I haven't seen people interact across the divide like that. Hmm. And in a way that it, you couldn't even tell actually at a certain point who was homeless and who wasn't unless they talk were talking about it. Yeah, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, just the. The, almost the environment kind of cloaked the condition in a way. Um, and I, you know, I, the conversations that I heard ranged from silly jokes to, um, you know, re real conversations about how, you know, how I ended up home living on the street, how long I've been living on the street, how, you know, what happened, what is it like, you know, it was, it was all of that. I mean, one of the, you know, the first few like hours from were like filled with so many laughs, and I was ner we were nervous. We this is yeah. a population we really haven't interacted with that much, um, 
And I was so nervous in the beginning, but the first couple of hours, like I laughed so much. You know, for instance, when we were putting up the curtains, <laughs> Sloan and I were putting up the curtains, and um, <laughs> one of the guys who's living on the street was sitting on, he is sitting in the living room already, and he's like, I think it should like move, move it a little down. And we were like, oh, I kind of like it like that. And then it fell down on its own. <laughs> and we just like, we're all like laughing about that so hard for some, it was so random, but it was just like, you have to be in the same space to even like laugh together about something like that. And it just like, right away when that happened, I was like, I would have never just had this like regular, just laughter with somebody. You know, or when we were installing, I think you were in the U-Haul, so you didn't see this, but when we were installing the living room, they were helping us, people that were already living on the street, yeah. like nearby, saw the commotion, they started helping us, yeah. and they started singing, like, our house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was just, yeah. like, a good time, you know? It was. It was, it was remarkable. We pulled, yeah, pulled up the U-Haul, um, and, like, immediately, you know, I had my, like, project management you know it's like okay there's everything has you know and like immediately lost control but in the best possible way right like like it it, it became apparent what we were there to do yeah. and people were just like immediately self-organizing yeah they were like, like help us here, assemble that goes there you know, put that like, here okay, my grandma yeah. puts her rug under the sofa right like this. yeah I'm yeah like, you know. and then in, in the, over the course of the day people also were making adjustments yeah they were cleaning it and like, yeah. you know, get your feet off of that, you know? <laughs> yeah. It just felt like a living room. I mean, right. it, yeah. it felt like a home. Right. Well, and how much, how much of that, like, it feels like the, the care of a living room offers another thing that um, is an observed phenomenon within the homeless community of, of that of disassociation of, you know, saying, okay, so yeah, society has rejected me. I'm rejecting the norms of society. But it feels like creating a space like that reinforces these very domestic norms um, that you're speaking to. Yeah, I think that was that was the spatial device that allowed us all to find some commonality, despite who we are and where we're coming from, what we're dressed like. Or you know, it really it we were that we were trying to find the signals, and that's how we ended up with the Polaroids and the picture frames yeah. and things. Huge motif was what are those like critical just societal, you know, motifs that, that, that make everybody feel comfortable or yeah. across the widest spectrum uh, that we can think of. Right. I mean, that, that's, it's an interesting observation about the dissociation, you know, like, I think that, I think so much of that stems from a, like, yes, society is rejecting us, but when you think about even like the the everyday moments, the way spaces, the way public space is designed to push away, like, you know, that I think that engenders the opposite response that I think is the, the natural human response, which is a desire to take care of a space. Mm. If, like, if it's clear that you're respected and you're wanted in a space, then, then there's a desire to care for it. Unless something is truly psychologically wrong or neurologically wrong or whatever, but I think that most humans share that desire and you know but when it's clear that we're not one in the space then all bets are off you know it's however however one chooses to, re to react to that whether it's to disengage or to frankly destroy so you said that you started this project really by wanting to ask a series of questions and the questions were probably paramount in your brains 
But as you've reflected on it in the last month and a half, did you find any answers? Are there things that you can pull out of this project that you're going to carry forward in your lives, shaping the built environment in various ways? You know, one of the things that's most profound, I think one of, yeah, one of the, the, the most profound takeaways for me has been like, this is such a simple project. It's so simple spatially and otherwise conceptually that it just calls attention to the fact that there is nowhere like that. You know, people kept being like, wait, so this is it? This is the only day? Or, you know, when can we do this again? Or is do you know of anywhere like this? And like, no, I don't. Um, and I don't have any answers other than like, I, I feel that there are some key aspects of space that should, that were working that day for a small period of time that I think, you know, I feel like I need a month, more than, way more than a month and a half to continue to think about how to extract those things into built landscapes that as a landscape architect and city planner um, that I have the privilege of shaping. Um, but I, but what I do know is that, you know, it is simple. Whatever it is, is very simple in a way. And um, I have, I still have more questions, but I, I, I feel like it's tending towards how we design public spaces, the idea of association and, and, and welcoming, and it's almost the opposite of what we're supposed to do as landscape architects. We're supposed to mitigate homelessness in public spaces to make others feel comfortable, others who don't live outside comfortable. And there's something, there's a, I think there's like a inversion of that that we did that was made everybody across the whole spectrum comfortable there. Um, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Hmm. Where are you at? Ah, um, yeah, I'm similarly kind of digesting it because, you know, I think that, um, yeah, the project itself is very simple. You know, I, you know, I thought about the dynamics that went into making it what it was on that day and, you know, how could you make that continuous or how do you scale it or, you know, how do you distill from it principles, um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, it indicates is, yeah, there's a role for thinking about how public space can accommodate that. But, you know, is there a way that you can actually pull that into the conception of how um, urban districts are planned and how affordable housing is, you know, or, or transitional housing is delivered? Can you actually transform the notion of a shelter into something that um, that helps to that, that creates a living room that somehow invites and, and breaks down these boundaries outside of the the traditional notion of you know oh well I go to a shelter to you know serve food or so forth like you know um, and I guess you know I, I haven't formulated a, an answer from that but that's where my mind is starting to go. Um, because it's one of the things that was so unique about the U District site where, where we did the living room, which was that, you know, it was already had the bones, it had the alley, it had this kind of inward facing, you know, in a very dynamic mixed use area with all sorts of, you know, with like students, with, you know, homeless folks, um, you know, there was just the right conditions. So is there some way that you can distill from that 
like a, a typology or you know some way that you can kind of diffuse that through different areas of the city and if so does it take different forms or does you know like do, do the strategies change that's just where i'm starting to like think like yeah. a month and a half after and I, I, and I, yeah i i and i don't have any answers yet on that but i'm kind of like you know i guess subconsciously and consciously processing well, and I think, like, you know, where, where some of the most powerful details, like the small-scale decisions, became the most powerful, like, but people were, like, so into the cut flowers. Like, people, you know, especially people living on the street just were, like, thank you for the flowers. You know, that is yeah. such a nice... T- and it, it, so it also just says something about, like, signaling to people that, like, care is going into a space. And beyond just, like, look, this is the bare necessities, you know. But just that, you know, and I don't, we could easily say it's about maintenance. I think that is part of it. But I think it's also just that sort of added layer of, I don't know what it, what it is, but there's, there's a small, these small details that really speak to people. And to be able to pull that out and say, like, and it's this thing you should have in all public spaces, I'm not there. But it just, those are the things that I'm like chewing on. Sarah and Sloan, thank you so much for sharing the Living Room Project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIG, SVR, and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at the Sound of Y V E. S.com. <laughs>